There's a thing that's called a gap year. How many of you have heard of a gap year? Um, it's an increasing trend among high school graduates to participate in what educational professionals have so professionally called a gap year. In fact, the U.S. up until three years ago, U.S. News and World Report estimated that around 40,000 students graduated from high school in the U.S., but then waited one year's time in order uh, to wait to be enrolled into some kind of education model. And in the past three years, that number has tripled. That's right, 130,000 high school students for the last couple of years, that's been the average of the last couple of years, they are now graduating from high school and waiting one year before enrolling into college. I see some of you, we had a lot of uh, high school graduates a couple of weeks ago walk across the stage. Some of you parents are looking at me and you're like, don't you dare talk about a gap year. They are not allowed to take a gap year. I want them out of my basement, right? Hang on. Why is it? you think, that over 130,000 would-be college freshmen would put off that year of study, some of them actually forfeiting major scholarships in the process. There's a few articles out there that try to suppose what, what the meaning of it all is. U.S. Labor of, uh, US Bureau of Labor, the Princeton Review, they've, always, they've all taken their best whack at it. Maybe a little bit of you know, anecdotal evidence on my own. It seems to suggest that this is an increasing number of students who are looking for purpose and ultimate fulfillment in life. And they don't think that college has it for them, and so they look elsewhere. They'll enroll in more freeing modes of study. They'll take foreign internships. They'll, they'll take a year to volunteer with some organization that they align with or admire. They'll travel as far as they can, posting hashtag van life every 30 minutes of their life. And it's all an effort to gain some perspective, to find what fulfills them, to seek out the purpose of life. Look, I'm, I'm not arguing for any such practices. I'll just say that if you can't find fulfillment wherever you are right now, you're probably chasing an Instagram-induced pipe dream. It's not gonna be something that you'll just arrive at one day in the desert from your van. But these students of life, they should make us all stop and question some things. You're probably a generation who you look at that whole idea, that whole model of a gap year, and you kind of scoff at it. Um, you had no option at all. Actually, you had one option. It was get a job, and that was about it. You didn't have the luxury of, of going on some kind of elaborate walkabout or anything like that. You threw yourself into adulthood. Some of you were drafted. Some of you just began working. Some of you just, you jumped right into getting married, buying a house, maintaining the cars, having babies, watching them grow. But you never really stopped and asked some of these esoteric questions of the purpose of life, the meaningfulness of life. What does it all mean? You just kind of put your head down, you got your nose to the grindstone, and you pushed forward. And in, in many ways, that is admir admirable, and I'm thankful for the many of you have, who have done that. It's worked well for you, for the most part. However, can I suggest something to you? At some point, maybe when the job crashes in around you, 
Or maybe when the doctor gives you unexpected, a shocking diagnosis, or perhaps when the spouse turns especially cold, or maybe there's a seminal character in your life who passes away, you are going to be thrown up against those questions that you have tried to throw back in the back corner of your mind for all this time. That question, what is it all for? Do you remember in 2006, there was this book that everybody raved about. It was called The Secret. The Secret. Listen how the book was billed to the public. Fragments of a great secret have been found in the oral traditions and literature and religions and philosophies throughout the centuries. For the first time, all the pieces of the secret come together in an incredible revelation that will be life-transforming for all who experience it. In this book, you'll learn how to use the secret in every aspect of your life. Money, health, relationships, happiness, and in every interaction you have in the world, you'll begin to understand hidden, untapped power that's within you, and this revelation can bring joy to every aspect of your life. Wait, there's more. The secret contains wisdom from modern day teachers, men and women who have used it to achieve health and wealth and happiness. By applying the knowledge of the secret, they bring light, compelling stories of eradicating disease, acquiring massive wealth, overcoming obstacles, and achieving what many would regard as impossible. That's a, that's a bill of goods right there. If I could distill the 198 pages down to just a sentence or two for you in hopes that you will never buy this book, Rhonda Byrne, the author, who is a famed television director prior to this and popular for her Australian show on UFOs, that ought to give you pause before you buy the book, by the way. She claims that what the secret to life is, is what she calls the law of attraction. It's so nuanced and I'm sure it gets into a lot of stuff, but essentially what you put out in the world is what you attract in the world. So you give off good vibes and good vibes are gonna come back to you. Sound anything like the 60s to you? That's pretty much what it is. Well, 1,962 years ago, there was a poor Jewish man who found himself imprisoned in a foreign and vile city named Rome. What's ironic about him is that this is the life that this man chose. He forfeited what we assume was great amounts of money He gave up the prestige of teaching tenure among those who respected him. He left all that was familiar to him. And when he found himself on the floor of a jail cell, given one of the only luxuries of being able to write, he scratched out lines more powerful than Mandela's prison correspondence or King's letter from a Birmingham jail. In this 2,183 word letter to the Philippians, The Apostle Paul doesn't make one single claim like Byrne and the secret do. 
He doesn't say that you'll get rich, you'll garner influence, that you'll be respected by your peers. He never once promises a promotion or extraordinary wealth. However, this prisoner has the audacity to claim that he has learned the secret to life. Philippians chapter four, verse 10, again, we find him pretty much in the middle of this thank you letter written to the Philippian church for helping him financially. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you care for me, that it has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard of need. He's in a jail cell in Rome, foreign country. Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned the secret both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. Really, the English Standard Version of the Bible probably has this better translated as I inserted it there in the middle of verse 12 when Paul says that in, that in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, abundance and need. How in the world could Paul claim such a thing? Why and what is this secret to life that this prisoner on the ground is saying, I figured it all out. What is this secret to life? Simply put, you don't have to buy a 198 page book, I'll just go ahead and tell you one word, contentment. Contentment. Look at verse 11 again. Here Paul uses this Greek word that's only found here in the Bible, artikes, and it's actually two words compounded together to mean self-fulfilled, contentment. Self-fulfilled. There's only two ways that we've ever found this word used in extra-biblical ancient languages, and the first way is to describe a country that has no need of imports. They are self-sustained. They, they don't have to have anything given to them, or there's no imports coming into their, they can supply all their needs from the inside out. But the second way that this word is used, this idea of contentment, it's used almost solely among a group of philosophic teachers called Stoics. We're not gonna dive the depths of Stoicism, but essentially, Stoicism teaches that man needs nothing outside himself. He's fulfilled in and of himself. No money, no relationships, no government. In a way, you can really feel the ethos of Stoicism in some of our founding fathers' literature, the pioneers who settled out west, they, in that westward expansion. It's this, I'm gonna stand on my own two, two feet or I'm not gonna stand at all kind of thing. And in a way, it's honorable, this idea of a Stoic life. Maybe helpful for some who feel like they deserve something from society, but taken to its furthest and intended degree by the school of stoicism. This is a dangerous doctrine. Let me tell you why. It reeks of humanism, that man is the measure of all things, that I control my destiny. The ultimate end of stoicism is I don't need God. 
I'm all there is. I'm going to live and die by it. At the end of the day, I'm going to write my name to it. That's who I am. Whatever comes, self-sustained. That's not how Paul uses the word content, though. In fact, it's ironic that he uses this word at all in this letter because for the Bible scholars in our midst, you know that the book of Philippians is, it's a letter thanking them for their financial gift. And so obviously, Paul needs outside assistance here. He's not saying, I'm my own man, take this money back. He's taking the money and thanking them for the money. Now, Paul isn't using the strictest definition of the Stoics' contentment here. He's only riffing off of it. He's taking the idea that was common in modern-day Rome, or in, in his time of, of Rome, and he's, he's taking the idea of Stoicism, and he's showing his friends, I'm thankful for the gift. He acknowledges their love and care for him, and he says that I love you too. However, his, age of, his use of this term He's poking holes even in our modern version of contentment. You see, when we say the word contentment today, what comes to mind? When you hear contentment, what's the picture that probably comes to mind? Let me tell you what comes to my mind. Thanksgiving Day, (laughs) sitting around the table, family that I don't get to see but maybe a handful of times a year, We're eating good food. I'm hearing about how the Lord has been blessing them. I get to see nieces and nephews and see how they're growing. And I can sit back from the table of Thanksgiving and I can say, content. Hashtag blessed. That's what I hear when I hear the word contentment. I don't think of a prison cell in Rome. Actually, this house arrest style prison cell was probably pretty comfortable compared to so many other things that Paul had gone through in his life. He says in verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. The language here that he's literally using is is saying, I've seen life half full and I have seen half empty. Abound means to overflow, but abased, it's the word that's used to tamp down. You know when you're filling in a hole and you, you, put, the, you put the dirt in and you get a step on it and then maybe you've got that you know, 10 pound tamper that you come along and you wanna get it really far down so that you can really press in that hole and make sure there's no air pockets and you don't, you're not creating a pothole for later that you step in whenever you're you know, mowing the grass or something like that. You tamp down the dirt. Paul is saying, I have overflowed in my life and I have been tamped down to the very bottom where the hits just keep on coming. Nevertheless, I am content. That's the language that Paul is using here. He knows what it feels like to be low, to be tamped down hard, smashing him even lower. 
In fact, earlier in a letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul had detailed many of the things that he had suffered in his lifetime. Let me read them to you for just a second. In chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says almost sarcastically, or not almost, pretty sarcastically, are there ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Essentially, five times I've been beaten 39 times. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods in addition to the one in verse 24. Once I was stoned, I had great huge slabs of concrete thrown at me inside a pit. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. The dude had to tread water for a night and a day. When was the last time you did that? He says in verse 26, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the the sea and perils among false brethren in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often and hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness. What and the man knows what it means to be tamped down. Hear all of that in 2 Corinthians 11 and realize that all of that was fairly early in Paul's ministry too. He still has a decade more of ministry to take place. So he will be beaten more. He will more than likely be shipwrecked again. He will be thrown in prison very often. He knows what it's like to feel the lowest of the low. There's something different about Paul's idea of contentment and my idea or your idea of a, of a content life. Would you agree? This isn't normal. This isn't Thanksgiving. And this is why I have friends who make bank, have a loving spouse, they have smart and strong kids. They've got a three-car garage and they still have to park more vehicles out on the driveway. They've got a palatial-like dwelling. They've got a pool, they've got a boat, they've got a house on the lake, they've got a house on the beach, they've got a healthy retirement and they still lack something. They've got the Thanksgiving table looking contentment, but that ain't it. When they pillow their heads at night, Though they've got everything that this world has to offer, there is something missing. Johnny Cash, in his autobiography, Man in Black, he writes about his career being at an all-time high in Nashville, so he built that massive house on Old Hickory Lake. Some of you have seen pictures of that. I'm sure you've seen it. He said that if you would walk inside, though, this brand new house, you could literally see spots on the brand new hardwood floor in front of the hearth where he would pace back and forth all night because he had everything, but he missed something. In the world's eyes, cash was tops, but he couldn't sleep at all because there was something missing. Paul writes, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I've learned the secret both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. 
That's the reason why I keep inserting the, the phrase, the secret, into the New King James translation is because it's truer to the original text. The Greek word that Paul uses is translated, I have learned, that we see in the New King James, it's mueo, and this again is the only time that this word is ever used in all of the Bible. It's specifically used in extra-biblical ancient literature to describe an initiation process into a secret club or a Greek mystery religion. Let me read to you a little bit about this. These were pagan religious sects and associations that would lead these new pledgers through severe and oftentimes grotesque initiations before welcoming them into their inner circles. It reads, if you were to look at some of the traditions that they went through, it makes hazing today on college campuses look like child's play. Some of these known rituals included animal sacrifice and having the blood and guts smeared all over you. Some of them would involve extreme fasting. But upon this completion, these new initiates who wanted to be a part of this club, a part of the society, they would go into the inner sanctum of the group where they would be told secrets of the world. Illuminati much, you know what I mean? Paul says, he uses the language here, I've been through the initiation. I have learned the secrets to life. I've gone through every single torturous thing that this world could throw at me, and I'm telling you now that I know that the secret to life is not just contentment. It is contentment in Christ. This is the difference from the Thanksgiving table, thank the Lord for all the blessings in this life, but this is contentment on the jail cell floor, having Christ and having all you need. And that's why Paul says in verse 13 of Philippians chapter four, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this verse is taken grossly out of context. Would you agree with me? We normally only hear this verse in one way. We automatically go to like a Tim Tebow's eye black or Steph Curry's shoe where he puts I can do all things dot, dot, dot. This is the verse in our modern day reading that rings a victory. We pretty much go ahead and insert I can win every game, I can ace every test, I can succeed in all my business ventures through Christ who strengthens me. And that is only half true. Hear me. Any success that you have better be laid at the feet of Jesus. Christian, you better learn how to win. For the last few weeks, I've been looking in my own personal study at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember this guy? The book of Genesis, he takes up the vast majority of the book. We're introduced to him where he is plotted against by his brothers. They then attack him and throw him down into a well or a dried up well into a pit. He's then picked up by some of his brothers and sold into slavery. He is then in Potiphar's house where Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. He's tossed into prison cell after prison cell. He's forgotten by his friends. He has seen and experienced the tamped down life that Paul was earlier 
mentioning. That's a pretty dangerous life story, probably unlike most of ours in here today. But do you know when Joseph was at his most dangerous point in his life? It wasn't when he was scheming or when his brothers were scheming against him. It wasn't when he was thrown into a pit. It wasn't when he was on the chain gang. It wasn't when he was in Potiphar's back hallway. It wasn't at his arraignment hearing. It wasn't in the prison cell. The most dangerous point of Joseph's life was when he ascended to power and the second command over all of Egypt. That was the true test of Joseph's contentment in God. Would he view this promotion as about time, God? I've put in all these years of work and it's about time I started getting payback on all this. I deserve this. That's not what Joseph did. Joseph saw his position for what it was that this is where God had placed him, where he could do the most good for God's people and for God's glory. And so whether that was the jail cell or second in command over all of Egypt, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not necessarily how we see winning usually, is it? Normally, the victory, the pinnacle, the top of the chain is is the time when we sit back and we say to ourselves, like the rich man in Luke chapter 12, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat Drink and be merry. You have earned this. So sit back. And we oftentimes see contentment in that way. There was a great Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson who wrote prolifically back in 1655. He said the discontented person believes everything he does for God is too much and everything that God does for him is too little. Doesn't that just hit you between the eyes? The discontented person is the one who believes that everything he does for God is too much. Look at all I've done for you, God. And everything that God does for him is too little. And our version of contentment or if our version of contentment is, God, I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now it's time for you to make good on your end. Can I warn you today? You don't know what contentment is. Can I go a little bit further than that? If you only see Christianity as something that you can get something from, victories, acclaim, name, you don't know who Christ is. Up until a couple of weeks ago, our D6 Sunday School class has been studying the life of Daniel. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they went through a great deal together, right? They were promoted, they went through a great deal together, but they were promoted and promoted until ultimately, looking over Daniel's life, you realize that this man was so talented and wise that he earned high positions in no fewer than seven administrations. He worked under seven kings. That doesn't usually happen. Usually people clean slate whenever they come into power. They kick out all the old and bring in all their new friends. But Daniel maintained his influence over seven different kings. Yet at nearly every chapter of Daniel's life, he's willing to sacrifice everything and himself 
if it comes down to his position or serving God? How could he refuse the portion of the king's meat? How could he not bow down to the pagan idols? How could he refuse to not pray to his God? Because Daniel was content in God. If that meant that he would lose his job, if that meant that he was thrown into a den of lions, Daniel was content. He wasn't so concerned with his position or even his own life. Because see, that's the other side of Philippians 4.13 that we don't like talking about. The losing side. If we can really do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we're not just talking about I can win every victory through Christ who strengthens me. We are also saying the other side is I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's true Christ-like contentment. Content in Christ. I thought long and hard about what to entitle the sermon this morning. What do you think of the sermon title? The Secret to Life. It's a little ambitious. Do you agree? That you think that you could come and for what? 30 minutes? Hey, I'm getting quicker here. 30 minutes, you could sit and listen to a 36-year-old who has barely a bachelor's degree, who has lived a charmed life by most people's standards, has rarely, if ever, wanted for anything. It's a bit ambitious to say he's going to tell me the secret to life. Friend, I am not telling you I am merely revealing what the word of God says. Here is the apostle Paul on the floor in prison and he's saying, I found it. I know what it means. Everything in life comes down to contentment with Jesus. Can I tell you, you don't, ha- you don't need to take a year off. You don't need to go backpacking in the outback to find this secret. In fact, sometimes those things get further in your way. You need only live faithfully this life that Christ has called you to. I wrote off to the side of this that I am to love his name at loss and I am to credit him when I am crowned. To love the name of God when I lose and I credit his name when I am crowned. That is contentment in Christ. Rach just finished reading to our girls the the modern masterpiece, The Hiding Place. Many of you are familiar with this story of Corey ten Boom. She was a Dutch Reformed Christian during the time of the Nazi invasion in the Netherlands. So take you back to the 30s and early 40s. She and her family, they they suffered through arrest and the Ravensbrück concentration camp, all because they were hiding Jews. They wanted to save the people of God, and so they hid them pretty much in in a back closet that was hidden away. And because she was arrested and thrown into this concentration camp, she lost a lot. Cruel, cruel things were done to her. In fact, she pretty much lost everything physical to her name. She was the only member of her immediate family to survive the concentration camp. And she only survived that pretty much because of divine intervention. 
Read the story yourself. It's impactful. Years later, Corey ten Boone summed up contentment in Christ best when she said, you may never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Do you feel that? In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Every Sunday morning, I've got a playlist that plays at 6 a.m. It starts playing throughout the house in hopes to gently wake up everybody in the house. Doesn't always work that well. But one of those songs is Fernando Ortega's modern day version of an old spiritual from the 1800s. Give me Jesus. And in it, he quotes from the slaves. And they say, you can take all this world, but give me Jesus. For now I'm telling you, contentment in Christ. I can have nothing but Christ and have everything. And the opposite side of that is you can have everything except Christ and have nothing. Nothing. Contentment. It's the secret to life. You'll never know true contentment apart from Christ. You might have those Thanksgiving meals where you sit back full physically and emotionally and everything and sit back, Lord, thank you for these blessings. You might be thankful, but you will never experience contentment without Christ. There was a woman in closing who lived in the 1800s. Her name was Frances Havergal. She was a believer, but in the way that she writes it, she was a surface believer. She claimed Christ passively. Everybody in her neighborhood was a Christian, so she was a Christian too, essentially. And it bothered her what it meant to truly be a Christian. And one evening, one sleepless night, when she really started to contemplate this, she picked up pen and ink, and because she was a poet, she wrote out the hymn today, take my life and let it be. In fact, turn in your hymn book to number 507. Rachel, will you hand me one? She says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of thy love. It's good. It's got a good rhyme. And it's a good philosophy of life. But in the next few verses, you see where she actually put shoe leather to her belief. In verse 2, excuse me, in verse 3, she said, take my lips 
and let them be filled with messages for thee. Havergal was a professional musician. And she began to feel convicted that in her concerts, she never once claimed the name of Christ. And so when she wrote this third verse of taking my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee, she's saying, take my concerts. And she never took one more concert that day where she did not give the plan of salvation clearly for all to hear after that point. She goes on in verse 3, and she says, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. In her journal, which was publicized after her death, she revealed something that really wasn't for public consumption, that she had hawked every single piece of jewelry that she owned, save one brooch that was from her grandmother. And she used it for the furtherance of the gospel. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Can you not just sing that this morning? Can you live that? If you can, that is contentment in Christ. We're going to sing it in just a moment. But can we pray that the Lord will embolden us and encourage us to live it out? Father, every single one of us, we have so much at our disposal. The truth is, is that more often than not, we have the winning side of Philippians 4.13 that we can get every victory through Christ who strengthens us. But Father, there may be a time, and some of us might be in the midst of this valley, where we are in the heartbreak and we are being tamped down, destitute, and I pray that even then, we are content, fulfilled, not with ourself, not with our own ambition, not with our own desires and everything else, but we are fulfilled with Christ. Lord, help us as we sing that we sing with lips that are not lying, that every fiber of our being, every word we speak, every scent we own is yours, living contentedly in Christ. Stand with me as we sing these verses. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love, at the impulse of Thy Look at verse 3. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee 
Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold, not a mite would I withhold. Let's sing that fourth and final verse without piano. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. You might not have been able to sing that for real, that verse, but I hope that you'll live it. The secret to life is being content, fulfilled with Christ. Don't chase anything else. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.